Okay. You guys ready? All right. I'm not taking it easy, easy on you just because it's Christmas time. You know that, right? All right, good. Just want to make sure. If you're new this morning, welcome. It's great to have you here. Um, I bought these special Christmas pants and all this stuff just to impress you. I hope it's working. Um, we're, we're finishing. This is the last week in a four-week series on idolatry. Um, and uh, so there's three sermons before this, so if you're confused, that would be why. It's not because I don't speak clearly enough, of course. Couldn't be that. Um, so anyway, uh, I do encourage you to go back and see those. Uh, they're on our website. But let me try to bring this full circle because that's what we're going to try to do. Okay, let me start out. Let's start out this way. Um, if you have a Bible and you want to open it to Romans 5, I'm going I'm to talk about Romans 5. I'm going to use some verses in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Peter. So if you want to put your fingers in a few places in your Bible, you can work back and forth. I'll have them on the screen. But to, to clarify... What I'm trying to say this morning, I'm going to have to use a couple different passages. And here's the one I want to use to set it up. This is Romans 5, 1 to 5. The Apostle Paul says this. Therefore, since we have been justified or made right with God through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Everybody's with it so far. Now listen to verse 3. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Okay? So you've got to ask the question, why does character lead to hope? Why is that? Why, doesn't that just lead to a stuffy life that nobody likes? And why does character lead to hope? Um, and the, the reason is because it proves the genuineness of your faith and what saves you. Jesus through faith, right? And so the hope comes from the fact that when suffering comes and your faith is proved genuine, you have hope that your faith isn't a sham. It's for real. And it's proven in your experience, in real life, when things are really happening. You see, it's, it's not God who learns something through your suffering. It's you who learns something through your suffering. You find out whether or not your faith is a total sham or whether or not God has really done a regenerating work in your heart, in your life, in who you are. Um, in fact, the word translated character, ha, ha, its meaning is to something proved or found out to be genuine, either by examining it, oh, that's a real whatever, or through an ordeal. Like you put somebody through something, they come out the other side, and that proves them genuine, right? That's what that word character means. That's what character is. How do you know somebody has character? It gets tested 
and they prove genuine. Otherwise, it's just a sham, right? So good results bring real hope, right? But one of the things we also need to recognize biblically is that bad training brings false hope. Bad training brings false hope. So this is 1 Timothy 4, 7 to 10. It says this. This is the apostle speaking to this leader about leading the church. He says this. Have nothing to do with godless myths or old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now, we don't like talking about godliness. When was the last time you said godliness, that word, at all? We don't even say that word, because what does godliness sound like? That we're talking about morality, and pretty soon we're going to be talking about self-righteousness. We're going to be self-righteous, because we're the holier than that, right? So we don't even say the word godliness. It's terrifying. But what does Paul say? He says, the main thing you should be doing is training yourself to be godly, because godliness has value in the present life, has plenty of value in the present life, and has, pre- and has value in the age to come. It has infinite value. Therefore, Timothy do it. Go for it. Make it your prime concern, right? In 1 Corinthians 9, 24, this is what the apostle says to a different group of people, to the whole church. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training, they don't, they do it to get the crown. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified, disqualified for the prize. Now listen, it's really easy to read over that. Those verses should conjure up really silly images in our mind. Watch this. <laughs> well, speaking of a composition, Nick, are you going to keep it under 70 minutes this week? <laughs> I can't take this anymore! That's it. Ha, ha! Uppercut, uppercut! Here comes the dragon punch! <laughs> we, we pride ourselves in high, high class production here at High Point. <laughs> there was a Christmas party last night. Um, I don't fight like a man beating the air. That's very, that's a very silly mental picture, right? You do not win fights that way. Just FYI for you kids, okay? You don't win fights that way. And, and think, I mean, think about, think about a runner. I mean, imagine somebody's gonna be like, I'm gonna run a half marathon, right? And you're like, oh really? Okay, well, what route do you, do you have like a route you really like? Right, and they're like, no, I just kind of jog around. You're like, really jog around? Yeah, I just kind of, you know, jog around. Kind of like, you know, like this. 
And you're kind of like, seriously, that's, you're, you're, you're not going to finish the race, sweetheart. You know, you're going to run into a Mazda, you know? <laughs> and it's just, but, but listen, listen to me, listen to me. Most of us train spiritually like that, but we expect somebody's going to give us some wonderful crown when we're done. That's, that's reality. That, that's why he said this silliness. He's like, look, that might sound silly, but that is exactly what most Christians do. We don't take training seriously. We don't, we don't go into strict training. Right? That's, but that's what he says. And the reason is, is because Godliness has great promise, has great promise, but it requires strict training, okay? Godliness has great promise, but it requires strict training. I want to look at two basic realities about godliness training this morning. The first is, is that godliness comes by faith, not by works. And secondly, godliness requires real spiritual discipline. Okay, I'm going to try to balance those out a little bit. So first, godliness comes by faith. Look at this, pat- this passage. In. This is 2 Peter 1, 3 to 8. L- listen to the logic in this, okay? It should throw you for a loop a little bit. Just listen. So here it's His, meaning the God's, His divine power has given us Everything we need for life and godliness, there's that word again, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Listen, if that phrase was not in the Bible, it would be heresy, okay? The phrase that you may participate in the divine nature. If those words were not in the Bible, I would think they were heresy. But that is how serious the apostle is about telling us that is how involved God is through the Holy Spirit in your godliness, in your transformation, in your regeneration, in your fullness in Christ, in your receiving the promises and feeling what they mean and being encouraged by them and living them out in community and all those things. He is that involved that it can honestly and seriously be spoken about as you participating in the divine nature. He goes on, though. Verse 5. For this very reason. Now think about that. For this very reason, make every effort, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, 
There's that word again. And to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there's like, a, there's like a spiritual growth progression there, isn't there? Right? He's like, okay, now listen. You believe in Jesus. Okay, great, great. Jesus is not morally neutral. He's not morally neutral. There are some things that are praiseworthy. There are some things that are blameworthy. There is good and there is evil. He has very clear ideas on what is beautiful, praiseworthy, true, honorable. And you need to find out what that is. You've got to find out what that is. And you need to add that to your conception of what it means to believe in Jesus. That's the first thing you've got to do. Because you can't grow in godliness if you don't know what godliness is. Right? It's a little bit of a problem. You, you have to know what godliness is. Therefore, you have to know what God believes is good. He's right about what he believes is good, and he will tell you what he believes is good, and so therefore you have to add to your faith goodness, right? And then once you've got that figured out, right, you learn more about it. You tease it out. Why is it good? Why does God think that? Why, these commands seem insane. Why are they right, true, and good, and beautiful? And so when you learn more, then after, then what do you got to do? Then you got to figure out how to make yourself do it. Right this second. So you got to figure out how to look at a temptation and be like, I'm not doing that. That's not good. I know why it's not good, and I'm not going to do it. And then you've got to keep doing that, and that's perseverance, right? You got to get self-control, right? So your spouse yells at you, and you're really upset. You're, you want to get angry. Like one of the things, here's one of my favorites, okay? I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but every once in a while, um, when I'm asked to do something, there's someone in my life who will say, right before they ask me what to do, will you get up and? Has that ever happened to you? It's not, will you go take out the trash? It's, will you get up and take out the trash? It just makes me angry. It just makes me angry. And, you know, I wish Jude wouldn't do that. But he does. And so, I, and so you want to get—now, here's the thing. It's very good. Self-control. You don't get angry the first time. Guess what? It might happen for 20 more years— can you continue to say, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to blow up in anger over that? Can you, you know, it's great. You, you're like, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be generous this Sunday. Okay, right. Well, guess what? You're going to be alive next week, probably. Are you, are you going to be a generous person? I'm going I'm to be hospitable. I'm going to talk to the other person in the pew next to me this one week. Fantastic. Self-discipline, self-control. You're doing what you know is good. You know why it's good. You're going to do it right now. Are you going to do it? the rest of your life. Because if it's good today, guess what it's going to be tomorrow? It's still going to be good. It was good for me to stay with my family and to provide for my children and to do what, I, what my duties were last week. And guess what? It's, I don't get off the hook this week because I did them last week. It's the craziest thing, right? You have to persevere. It's not just enough to have self-control right now. That self-control has to last, right? And then it goes on, and then, God, then what does that produce? You do the right thing for the right reasons, because you know the right reasons, because you have faith in Jesus, with self-control, over time, what is that? It's godliness, it says. That's godliness. Great. And then he says, now is it just about you, or is it about everybody else too? Is it just personal godliness, or is it social godliness? Do you care about anybody else, right? So he says, so add to that self-control and perseverance, brotherly kindness, right? And to that, Love, because go godliness is just what you don't do, 
or that you just do a narrow set of direct duties is not the kind of expansive godliness that was demonstrated in Jesus. He cared about people. He had brotherly kindness towards everybody. He loved others. And so to have a complete Jesus-focused godliness, it, it, it has to be, you have to have self-control and perseverance, but then it has to open up also. Now, here's one of the issues that, that we have to face. God has given us everything, right? Says, God has given you everything, therefore, make every effort. Now, here's the issue with our effort. Um, we have some real, and this, I'm talking about the church right now. I'm not talking about the world out there. I'm talking about the church. The church has a number of psychological mechanisms by which we let ourselves off the hook on pursuing godliness while we communicate that we care about it. And I think we need to talk about these for a couple minutes. Is that okay? All right. The first is in our definition of morality. Right? We'll say, we don't like to talk about morality, but every once in a while, you just can't escape it, right? So, so blah, 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 talk about morality, don't want to talk about, okay, so then the word comes up, oh my gosh, morality. And then we go, oh, I have a very Christian morality, right? And we, the reason we can say that with a straight face is because we have a new definition for morality. It's the, great, the greatest thing about words is, if you don't like them, you just give them a new definition, and you say them and just mean that long enough, and then everybody, the meaning just changes. You see, if you went back numerous generations, and you asked somebody in 1821 in Leeds, England, you know, what morality means, they'd say something like this. They'd say, morality is what you do in a given circumstance, no matter what the circumstances. So morality dictates, this is what I do, no matter what the circumstances. That's the very definition of morality, that the circumstances don't matter, this is what I do. No matter, it doesn't matter the cost. Because it's right, right? Now, what does it mean? What does it mean if you go out and you ask somebody how they live, or you look at our, we look at our own lives? What does morality mean? Morality means in our lives something like um, the action I'll do if circumstances permit. That's what we mean, right? Is that what we mean? Have you ever have you ever confronted somebody or been confronted about something that you know is wrong? What do you do? You say, you could bet a thousand dollars that you're going to get some kind of extenuating circumstance answer, aren't you? And that's what you're going to give. Well, what, why, why'd you do that? Well, it's just really expensive to do blah, 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 blah. Or it, it's based on this idea, I can't be expected for goodness to cost me something. And I certainly can't be expected for goodness to cost me everything. But listen, listen, folks, you need a new religion then. Okay, you just need to go and get a whole nother religion because Christianity is, a, is the religion of martyrs and not the we kill you martyrs, the you kill us martyrs. Okay? That's what we are. That's Christianity. God can ask you to lay down your life for virtu- what you would consider virtually nothing. And he doesn't blink and he did it himself. God is the own, this Christian, only religion that believes in a God who suffered for you and was killed unjustly and laid down his own life and paid everything because of his moral belief that dying at the hands of sinners was worth it because of the goodness of saving sinners. It's Christianity. Morality means that which we do no matter the circumstances. And if you redefine it, you let yourself off the hook. 
Secondly is that we like to, is a change in definition away from virtues. When was the last time you had a conversation about virtues? Can you recall one? <laughs> We're having a moment here, yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 can't, I can't tell you the last time I had a conversation about virtues. I mean, can you even name them? Can you name the seven virtues? The four ancient Greek ones and then the three added by the church later? Of course not. Because virtues, somewhere in the 1800s, became virtue, which became reduced to virginity and not greed, right? And then we started talking about what? What do we replace? Does anybody know what we replace virtue with? It's another V word. Values. I have values. Don't you have values? I value things. So it's not, are you a liar? It's, I value honesty. And you see, it's, it's, it's a dirty trick because here's what you can do. You can basically argue that you value the thing you just spit on because if the circumstances were any less than when you just broke that, you would have done it. Right? So did you commit adultery? Yes. But I value fidelity, and if adultery was, was any easier to avoid, I would have, because I really value faithfulness. Are, are, are you a liar? Well, sometimes, but I really value honesty. And if telling the truth at my work would have cost me any less than it did, I would have told the truth, because I really value honesty. It's just that the, the stakes were so high that, and the lie was so small that surely God would not want me to throw my career away or to throw my promotion away or to throw— I mean, surely. And by using the word value, you can have no virtue. You can protest that you're a deeply value-centered person who believes in all the right things, live out none of them, and be a good Christian person who goes to church and is religious, but there's, there's no weight to it. There's no authenticity to it. There's no grip to it. One of the last one, here's the third language difference. Um, I love it, and I, I've done this. Okay, I've done this. So don't think I'm just talking to you. Do you love it when people talk about how they struggle with things? Do you love that? I love that. I say that. I'm struggling with that. I really struggle with being selfish. I really struggle with that. Um, Barnabas Piper, who's actually one of John Piper's kids, an editor at Booty Books, he wrote a blog on this, and I just want to read a little section of this for you, because I think it's really funny. He wrote, he wrote a blog, blog called, it's called Struggle, and so he says, Struggle. It's a word which exemplified so much of Christian idiosyncrasy and a fair amount of Christian idiocy. It is a mask for reality, a disguise for the truth. What's the truth? It's an, it's an ironic rhyme and a telling one. Snuggle. It rhymes with snuggle, but it's more truthful to our present state. It aptly describes what so many of us really do with the sins we mask with the word struggle. Reality is that we're often quite cozy with our sins. We're used to them, safe with them, and very, very snug. And there is no real struggle. But we must say struggle, hadn't we? It's the code word for so many sins. It gives a hint of humility, a smidgen of shame, and a bit of admission of guilt. It's understood by our fellow strugglers to refer to something about which we, we do not speak openly, but we take part in actively. 
it strikes that perilous balance between open confession, which is, of course, unsafe and uncomfortable, and the outright denial of sin, which no good theological person would let us get away with. But most importantly, it keeps up appearances. When you find the word struggle coming out of your mouth, you just need to ask yourself honestly if the word snuggle would be more apt. And lastly, and quickly, I would say the word journey would fall into this too. We're all on a journey. Yeah, and we're going nowhere. Okay? Yeah. We're on a journey. We're on a journey. Whatever. You don't even believe in the destination and you're going nowhere. Right? Like, you're like, I'm on a journey to, to, to Jesus. Yeah? But you don't even believe in godliness. You don't even believe it can happen. And you don't even find it desirable. How, I mean, how, do, how, can, how can I even believe that I'm on a journey to godliness if I don't really even believe transformation is possible? Or in some cases, desirable. And listen, friends, it, and I'm not trying, listen, okay, I would say I'm not trying to pick on you. Actually, it's great fun to pick on you and me, because all these things, I've used all these things myself. But we better laugh at our blindness and see it. And we better realize that these language games we will use psychologically to let ourselves off the hook from the real call to godliness. And therefore, um, let, me, let me read a quote for you. In, in David Wells' book, um, where are we? Yeah. In David Wells' book, um, it's called Losing Our Virtue. It's a, th- it's a thick book. I really like it, but I'm not recommending it for most. This is, what, this is one of the things he says in the introduction. He says this. The most important part of our self-understanding, that we are moral beings. Nothing about that. Has that ever occurred to you? Do you go through life thinking the most important part of your self-understanding is that you are fundamentally, by nature, a moral being? I don't think so. I think we think that we're consuming beings. (laughs) It's Christmas. I've gained nine pounds. The most important self-understanding that we are moral beings has been removed from the equation. Functionally, we are not morally disengaged, adrift, or alienated. We are morally obliterated. We are, in practice, not morally illiterate. We have become morally vacant. He says on another page, I conclude that which is most put in jeopardy and what most needs to be recovered with respect to God are our understanding of his moral nature and his sovereign providence. That's the key line. Our understanding of his moral nature and his sovereign providence. And without this recovery, evangelical, that means Bible-believing, Jesus risen from the dead faith, evangelical faith will lose if it has not already lost its moral fiber and its spiritual authenticity. There's a couple places. This is, I, was, I was looking at this, this whole idea of godliness. I was looking, I was doing a word study on the Greek word for, for ungodliness, which is eusebia. Um, and in a number of places in the Old Testament, where the Old Testament is translated into Greek, the Greek translators use the word eusebia for godliness to translate the phrase fear of the Lord. Which is, which is funny because phobos there's a, there is a Greek phrase, fear of the Lord. It's not, it's not like that's a problem. But for some reason, they choose that. They choose to translate the Hebrew fear of the Lord with godliness. Which makes sense if you read the verse, verse Proverbs 9, 
10, who says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And if you know from 2 Peter, that knowledge of God's goodness and greatness is on the road to godliness. You see, I think what they understood was that you cannot approach godliness without the fear of the Lord. And if you really have in your guts, down to your toes, a real fear of God, that is, you know that God is greater than you and better than you, the doctrine that has always been called the doctrine of God's holiness. That God is infinitely greater than you and God is fundamentally better than you. And that that matters. It's a doctrine of holiness. If you believe that, really, you will grow in godliness. There's no way around it. You, you couldn't not, you see. If you really walk around all day with this sense that there is a God who is totally there, who is completely, infinitely over all things, and his sovereignty, that means his rulership as king, and his providence, that means his working in all things, is functioning everywhere, in your life, all the time. And if you believe in his moral uprightness and the perfection of his justice, and that he is fundamentally, centrally committed to that, there is no other option but for that to fundamentally transform the kind of creature you think you need to be. And I think I need to be. The problem is that we have a difficulty because we don't understand reality that way, really. If you want to understand why we have so much trouble with this, the answer can be found in bacon. Okay? Now, primarily, it's first found in the philosopher Francis Bacon— who said that the, that the summum bonum, or the greatest good for humanity, is man's conquest of nature. What are we, what are we really after in life? We're after our conquest of nature, right? Which, which Bacon is a great example of our successes in our conquest of nature. It's not even my favorite breakfast meat, but I would eat this whole package right now if I could. But what it, what it belies is a fundamental understanding of the universe in which there is humans and there is nature. This is the world. And that's it. That's it. And Peter Kreef says a great thing in his book on virtues. He says, he says, without exception, without exception, in any view of the world, the inferior always submits to the superior. Always. No exceptions. In any view of the world, the inferior always submits to the superior. So if this is your view of the world, what submits to what? Nature must yield. The summum bonum for humanity is our conquest of nature. We, this must yield to man. And therefore, human pursuits are about technology, and technique. Where is God in that picture, in that view of the world? Where must you put God? In that, if that is your real view of the world, God must reside where? Here. He must. If you believe Fundamentally, there is humanity, there's us, and there's the world. The world must submit to us. Therefore, we engage in technology, applied science, and technique. There is only one place for God. God must be a technique. 
human beings use to conquer their lower animal nature in which to provide for themselves the outcomes that they want. God is a technique. And let me just tell you, that idea about God is not going to take you anywhere. It's not take you anywhere. You can't get to Middleton on that view. It's a block. But biblically, the world is like this. There is God, there is humans, and there is the world. Right? Which means, do we, if you believe that, does that mean Christianity is unscientific? No, because the world still must submit to humanity. Therefore, humanity still engages in technique and technology. That's still there. But there is another inferior that must submit to a superior here. And if this God is holy, which he is, then humanity conforms in virtue and godliness. And that's why, that is why godliness comes by faith and faith alone. Because if you believe that, godliness is impossible. And if you believe this, godliness is inevitable. Do you see that? If God is holy, and then God has given us the internal resources through faith in Christ that we need through his Holy Spirit to become this, and he reveals to us what this is, then as humanity, we engage in both of these things, and yet we don't confuse them. The problem is, when you take this away, this becomes everything. This is modernity. This is Christianity. Godliness comes by faith. Now quickly, yeah, we don't have time for any of that. Um, quickly, godliness requires spiritual discipline. Godliness is only produced through gospel training. You can believe all the right things, but without active training, it cannot be produced. And here's why. C.S. Lewis has this great line in the Screwtape Letters, two demons talking about tempting this person who's just become a Christian. This is what the tempter, the, the ruler tempter says, Screwtape. He says, there's no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us again. And this is why he says that. All the habits of the patient, meaning the Christian, all the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. Still in our favor. We have all the habits of the human on our side. And, and notice he doesn't say just physical or bodily habits. When you wake up, when you go to bed, when you eat. He doesn't just control the stomach, right? He controls the mind. Is that the, our, we don't just have physical habits, we have mental habits. And our mental habits are just as ingrained just as habitual, just as self-defining and self-controlling as our bodily habits. And when you get converted, your mental habits don't change and your bodily habits don't change until they get changed through ongoing, applied, strict discipline. 
Godliness requires spiritual discipline. This is a passage I read just before. He said, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Now think about that. What's the, what's how have we been programmed to think about that? We've been programmed to think, oh, this is just an example of Paul and his anti-feminist ideas. He's just, he's a woman hater. He's trying to push away from knowledge. No, he's not. There's male silliness and there's old woman silliness, okay? What he's saying is, don't be naive, don't be naive. There, is, there, are, there, is, there are no shortcuts, there are no secrets, and there are no gimmicks to godliness. There are none. And God wanted it that way, and it's never going to be any different than that. There are no shortcuts, gimmicks, or secrets. Don't be naive. Don't pay any attention to people who are like, oh, if you just envision it. No. Baloney. You have to engage in disciplines. I mean, what would you do if you were like the principal, you're like an athletic director, and some, some guy comes into a coaching interview to coach a basketball team, and says, listen, I'm going to take your team to the state championship. Here's how I'm going to do it. We're not going to practice. We're not going to run drills. We don't need that stuff. Problem is in here. We're going to envision success. Three hours a day. Three hours a day, we're going to envision success. <laughs> and we're going to win a state championship. I would throw that guy out so fast. Are you kidding me? You know, they can imagine, they're not going to have any conditioning and no muscle memory. What do you think is going to happen? Nothing. Embarrassment. Cancel the program. That's what you want if you're going to hire that guy. Same thing with your spiritual life. Why would you think that there's some kind of gimmick? And why would you think that it's just going to happen? It's not going to happen. I'm not going to get in shape driving. Second, in 925, it says, anyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Remember that from chapter 9? Because you can say, listen, strict? Strict training? How strict? Well, it depends. It depends on how far you want to go, and it depends on how shape you are. You see, because generally speaking, what we think is, if if I just became a Christian, I'm going to ease into this, okay? I'm going to ease into this. So after about a year... I'll read the Bible for two minutes a day. And like 40 years from now, I'll be like fasting and praying and blah, 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 that kind of stuff. I'm going to kind of work my way into it. Okay, okay. I think that's really naive. I think you probably need the strictest regimen of spiritual discipline day one. It's only after everything's online and you're trained and things are rolling, then you might break out a little bit if it's tiring you out or something or if it's not producing what it was producing or you might need to readjust some things. But this idea that I'm going to work my way— Listen, if, when you get saved, that's probably your most ungodly and unvisioned moment, and what you need is the most discipline then. If there's any time in your life you need a small group, it's right when you become a Christian or early in your Christian faith. If there's this time when you need to read the Bible, seriously, it is right after you accept Jesus. If there's a time when you need to focus on praying, it is early on so that you can build a discipline for later. And, and that's why mentoring is so big in the Bible. Because you probably don't know how to do it, so you need to find somebody who will help you. Which is why humility is so big in the Bible. And when you look at these things, one of the biggest— I had, there's a whole bunch more on this so I'm not going to talk about, okay? So, 
um, one of the things to recognize is there are, there are certain things mentioned in the Bible and practiced by the church throughout the years that are spiritual disciplines. And one of the biggest misconceptions that people have about spiritual disciplines is that most of them are private. That most of them are private. It's false. Um, we just don't think of the public ones as spiritual disciplines. But reading your Bible privately and praying privately, guess what? Reading your Bible privately is hardly mentioned in the Bible. Hardly mentioned anywhere. Right? But public worship and how it should be done and what it looks like is commanded everywhere. In fact, there's more, there are more commands in the Bible that presume you will become a church member, which probably most people in here think is unbiblical. There's more verses in the Bible that presume you will become an official church member than there are that you should pray privately. Did you know that? The vast misconception about spiritual disciplines. There's, there are private ones, and those are important. And I'm not saying anything against it. Listen, I think, I read the Bible every day. I pray every day, okay? We'll fast every day. But these public ones are just as important. In fact, I would say, if you're only going to do one set, I would tell you to do the public ones. And I'm not saying you have to do every one every week all the time. You put together an array, just like when you go to the gym, you would put together an exercise array. You go to these and you put together an array for yourself and, again, mentoring. Find somebody who can help you, okay? The point is this. You can't freewheel. Don't be naive. You can't freewheel. You are going to be stuck one way or the other, okay? You are either going to be stuck in a rut or you're going to stick yourself on a track, okay? But you are going to be doing one of those two. If you don't get yourself on a track, laid out, stamped out, put out for you so you know where you're going and riding it, you're going to end up in a rut and that's where you're going to be. There is no freewheeling. It doesn't work. Human beings are too habitual. You're too habitual. There's no way to just be a different you every second, deciding freely every moment. That's not how we function as organisms. A couple quick stories. Just this week, just this week, I was with somebody who works in the public sector, and he went to an ethics seminar done in this city, and he said at the end of the ethics seminar for providing services, then the one application question that was discussed openly and, and, and was like the um, application was, how long after you provide services for somebody through public means is it okay to have sex with them? It may be culturally that we're bankrupt enough that you're going to have to find a way to get, you can't, we can't look to the culture morally, can we? Another person this week was a Christian. It's like, I love, I love God. But then explained to me that that person was in a moral situation that was totally unbiblical. Totally unbiblical. And if that person was going to get out of that situation, it was going to cost them. It was going to cost them. They have to decide whether, what definition of morality they're functioning on, don't they? It matters. And I met with another person this week who found out the worst possible news, other than you're going to hell, that a human being can get. Just withering tragedy impending on his life and on his family. And you see, you have to have 
a moral vision. You have to have a strong encouragement. You have to have moral guts, and you would better have spiritual strength if you're going to live with any kind of godliness in this world. It comes by faith, but it requires strict discipline. But it also gives great promise. The band's going to come up and play a song for us to go out on. Let me pray quickly as they come. Father, I pray that you would um, help us to have a really good attitude about discipline. That you would fill us with hope and joy and encouragement that every one of these passages we read talked about that it produces. And would you lead us to be a people who are not self-righteous and are not legalistic, but realize that our hearts and our minds and our habits need training and to put ourselves in your hands through the spiritual disciplines you've put together for us so that we can experience the kind of transformation we were meant to have because we know it has promise for this life and the life to come. Amen.